what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, hard to believe this is episode 49. 49. Wow, that is crazy. That's a lot of episodes, all available free. You can go listen to them right now. Of course, maybe finish listening to this episode first, but that also means that the next episode is the big 5-0. We're turning 50, and as an added bonus, we're going to do episode 50 on July 1st, 2020, That is two years to the date of our first episode. So we're going to have our two-year anniversary for episode 50 on July 1st. So stay tuned and be ready for that one. We're going to do something a little different, something a little special. Be excited. Be excited indeed. But we still have episode 49 to get through. So David, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's 1959. And on a parliamentary trip to Belize, Harford Montgomery Hyde thinks that everything is pretty boring, pretty normal. But then he gets a telegraph from his wife telling him that in his absence, without his knowing about it, his party decided to have a primary or the equivalent, rather, the deselection process, the equivalent of what Americans or Canadians would know as a primary for his seat, and he lost. So bad news for Harford Montgomery Hyde. He's a loser while he was on a trip, didn't even have a chance to contest it. David, what was his job? So he was a member of parliament in the British parliament, and he'd gotten elected on the back of being a minor war hero from the Second World War. So he's a well-respected, sincere guy. And just for the record, he's in the Irish Unionist Party of Northern Ireland, which is usually viewed as the most conservative of the parties in British Parliament. Although, as we'll be discussing, he wasn't quite on every issue as conservative as some of his colleagues. So is that why they would want to get rid of him, David? Was it because of his conservative or not conservative enough politics that they decided to oust him while he was on a trip to Belize? That is exactly why his party is busy knifing him in the back, because he's had one issue, well, a couple of issues technically, but one issue in particular where his disagreement with the party leadership has made him a target. And that is? Mr. Hyde believes that homosexuality should not be a crime. And in 1959, that makes him a radical. Of course, today, David, we'd all take that for granted that it shouldn't be a crime. But back then, it was in fact a crime. It was. Specifically, I should note, in Britain, only male homosexuality was a crime. British law did not acknowledge that there was such a thing as lesbians, as female homosexuality. But that's a detail. Fundamentally, what stood out was the injustice of 
criminalizing uh, perfectly natural behavior. And not all that long ago, David, just 1959. So what did Mr. Hyde do to earn the ire of the Irish Unionist Party? Well, in 1958, there was a report issued by a group of legal experts who'd been asked by the British government to discuss the laws of England and more specifically the issue of how best to apply laws surrounding public morality, including the question of homosexuality. It became known as the Wolfenden Commission, and it became most famous because it recommended, quite simply, that there should be no criminal charges applied to homosexual acts, that homosexuality should be legal. And that was radical, obviously, and disapproved of by the government of the time, which accepted the report and announced that it intended to not follow the report's conclusions, which is something a government can choose to do. But Montgomery Hyde decided that he wanted to fight that. And in order to support, to try and get this report's recommendations enforced, he actually brought it up in Parliament multiple times, raised the issue, and even tried to bring it to a vote, although he never got it out of committee. But just that little rebellion from a guy who, again, I remind you, was a respected war hero from World War II was enough to make sure that his party leadership went from supporting him to having it out for him. Was there a reason why this was such an issue for him, why he didn't just fall in line with his more conservative colleagues? Well, that's an interesting question, Neil. We know that it was a big issue for him all his life. He was actually, as well as being a British spy operating in Canada in the Second World War, a lifelong student of history and lawyer who wrote books on the history of homosexuality in Britain and especially in British law, books on guys like Oscar Wilde and Roger Casement, who were clearly the most famous British legal cases involving criminal charges and homosexuality up to that point. And some have speculated based on that, that he may have been gay himself or possibly bisexual, but he remained apparently happily married with multiple children all his life. So ultimately, we really can't give a definitive answer to why he fought so hard on this issue, other than that he knew that the government, the law, the system was wrong. So a brave moral stance from Montgomery High, David, but it's cost him his seat. He's lost this election process. Does he have any recourse? What's going to happen here? Ultimately, no. No, he really doesn't. It's all in the hands of the party and therefore the party leadership who are not going to be taking a radical back. So in that sense, it might seem like this is a depressing story. He believed something. He fought for it, and he lost, and that's it. But you have to remember that 10 years later, in 1967, 
Britain did decriminalize homosexuality, and that was not unique. It was part of a movement across the entire English-speaking world because the same things that in the 50s had been too radical to contemplate by the end of the 1960s were becoming the new moral consensus. And that was driven by these big social movements of which he was just an example. How much of a role did he play in turning the tide and others like him who believed in this for moral reasons and were willing to stand up for it even if it cost them their jobs? So here's where it's helpful to take a broader look at why the 1950s were, I don't want to say unique, but why the same attitudes that were so entrenched in the 1950s seemed unusual even to the people who were living through them. In the 1940s, a guy like Montgomery Hyde, who spoke out, would be in some ways less likely to be actually targeted. Obviously, there were specific high-profile cases like Oscar Wilde's where very publicly gay men were punished to try and, you know, support a certain moral vision and support especially the status quo. But in the 1940s, Alan Turing, the British cryptographer who played a vital role in the Second World War and a vital role in the development of the modern computer, was gay, was fairly well known in certain social circles to be gay, and this did not bother anyone who was working with him because he was relatively quiet and discreet about it, and there was an expectation of silence. But in the 1950s, Alan Turing gets arrested, charged, and convicted of homosexual acts because that expectation is gone. And that ties us in to a possibly slightly surprising element of the societal acceptance of gay rights, which is the Cold War. That is slightly surprising, David. What does the Cold War between the West and Russia have to do with acceptance of homosexuality in Britain and other English-speaking countries? So the thing about the Cold War at its start in the late 1940s and especially the early 1950s is that it came with a powerful movement which argued that the way to beat the communists required that the West become better, become more moral, to prove that capitalism was better than communism. And this was a conservative movement which frequently included clampdowns on all kinds of deviant behavior, so-called deviant behavior, as part of how they were going to demonstrate and also create that improved morality. And 
homosexuality was a particular target because it could be loosely argued to be related to the struggle, the Cold War struggle. There were frequent allegations, for example, by the Hui Committee in the United States of America, which argued that homosexuals were a security risk if they worked in government, that they could be blackmailed by Soviet secret agents, and just generally argued that for reasons of national security, these men with clear, weaker moral fiber needed to be prevented from, well, from existing, effectively, needed to be removed from government and made somehow straight, which was a movement across the entirety of the English-speaking world. Canada definitely was not exempt. In fact, the RCMP's specific strategies are somewhat bizarre, but also in some ways worse than comparable efforts in, say, the United Kingdom. So you have this wrong-headed push by conservatives to get rid of homosexuals in government and elsewhere in society because they believe it will help them to win the Cold War. Exactly. It ties in this sort of moralizing movement argues that discouraging homosexuality in some sense is the right thing to do, but also that it's going to be the profitable thing to do, that it is going to make the West safer. And that argument obviously is very attractive for people who are just homophobic, who just don't like the fact that gay people exist. So there becomes a push, like I say, a widespread push. In America, the McCarthy Committee, in theory, hunting Russian spies also pushes out multiple U.S. diplomats on the grounds that they're homosexual. In England, the Metropolitan Police begin their crackdown on homosexuality, which, as I said, arrests Alan Turing and then eventually sparks a backlash where he's this famous war hero who ends up committing suicide because of his persecution by the police, and people say, like, that seems like it was a bad idea. In Canada... The RCMP hired a psychologist and he developed a machine to attempt to determine whether people who were tested were homosexual based on having them watch different clips of pornography involving different combinations of partners and then measuring their stress reactions, which didn't actually work, but did get multiple people fired from the Canadian government for being allegedly homosexual, some of whom were definitely not. So that's a bizarre story in its own right. So you have this push, David, across the Western world to try and get rid of homosexuality to win the Cold War. How does that turn by 1967? We're still in the midst of the Cold War. But England is ending the ban on homosexuality, and you start to see this change. Well, the seeds of the end of this movement, of this push, are already strongly ongoing 
well before it actually reaches its peak. For example, I mentioned the Hui report earlier, which alleged that gay men must be a security risk because Soviet secret agents could blackmail them. In 1957, practically at the peak of this movement I've been talking about, the U.S. Navy created the Crittenden Report, which was a report looking into that because it sounded kind of strange to some senior Navy admirals who were like, does that actually happen frequently? And it found that its experts, its members who were experts in the field of intelligence work, could not find a single documented instance of this happening up to that point and had strong reasons to believe that it would not be more likely to be successful than other reasons why individuals might be blackmail targets such as gambling or, you know, any other form of slightly unusual behavior. So as experts looked at these bold claims that were being made, they really started to fall apart. They didn't they weren't persuasive. And at the same time, ordinary people were being hurt. I mentioned the people who got fired by the RCMP and their quote fruit machine, unquote. Obviously, that created a backlash amongst Canadian government workers who knew quite well that this was not a effective test of homosexuality, that it was a bizarre pseudo-scientific machine, but they also knew they could be fired if they happened to fail the test, and that creates pushback. People see the injustice that is being done in front of their faces when before when the code of silence was being enforced more strongly with only one or two high profile cases it was easier for people to ignore what this really looked like what was actually happening so there becomes this pushback by the late 1950s and especially the early 1960s, you have people standing up and saying things are happening that are crazy. The judicial system is out of control and punishing people who don't seem to have done anything that we want them punished for. And that in turn creates a desire to change the laws. If you can't trust the people who enforce the laws, you have to change the laws that they enforce. And all of this not so long ago, David. Not very long ago at all. And it's worth remembering, even the late 1960s set of decriminalizations, I focused on England because I started this off talking about Montgomery Hyde, but we could have talked about Pierre Elliott Trudeau's famous speech where he announced that the state has no place in the bedroom of the nation or a dozen other similar 
cases from around the world where there was a backlash to the initial the initial efforts to increase the enforcement of laws against homosexuality even then you rarely saw it being fought out as an argument that homosexuality was an acceptable moral alternative way to live instead you just see people arguing that since the laws are too liable to being abused it's time to take those laws off the books which is a positive first step but the struggle for real acceptance was really only beginning as the 1970s started not ending and is still going on to this very day absolutely thanks for telling us this story david thanks for listening all right david we always like to play a quiz at the end of this to wrap everything up with a fun sort of more light-hearted way of thinking about history and today's quiz is a crossword quiz i have a history-based crossword for you to fill out david all right Of course, crosswords are a bit visual, so if you'd rather do the crossword yourself first before you hear us give you the answers, stop listening now. Go to our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at WhenArtThou. I will post the crossword there so you can get it, fill it out yourself, and then finish listening to this episode and hear whether you got the answers right or wrong. At WhenArtThou on all of your social media platforms. David, let's jump into this quiz. Are you ready? All right. And of course, because it's a crossword, David, you can pass on the answer if you're not sure and then come back to it when you've got a few letters to help you out. Let's start with one down, David. And the clue is the first U.S. space station. Six letters long. Six letters. Oh, then the one I was thinking of is seven letters. Um... I'm going to pass just for a second to see if I can get some extra letters. Okay, two across is a tricky one, David. Nobel winning Chancellor Willie. This is six letters long. You're right that it's a tricky one. Well, there's a few you might get a little easier here, David. How about three down? Coliseum setting. Four letters. Four letters. Well, the city that the Colosseum is set in is Rome, so I'll give that as my answer. Okay, so we've got Rome going down. Four down is Martin Luther King had one. Five letters. Well, I'm going to guess that this is a reference to the famous speech where Martin Luther King famously said, I have a dream. You're right, David. We can fill that in. Let's do five across now. The last clue here. Writer Zola. It is five letters long and you have blank M blank blank E. Jacques of given clue number five being Emile. Great. You've got that one as well. Let's just go back to Chancellor Willie. It's six letters, but you've got a couple now. You've got blank, R, blank, blank, D, blank. Second letter in R. Uh, I've got nothing, Neil. That was a tough one. It's Chancellor Willie Brandt. Brandt. 
and that B is the last letter in the first U.S. space station. So it's six letters long. The last letter is a B. All right. With the last letter being a B, I'm suspicious that it ends in lab because I know some of the U.S. space stations did. Six letters. It can't be something like space lab. So I'm going to say Skylab. You got it, David. Good job on the crossword. Hope you had fun with that if you went and got it off our social media and filled it out or if you were just playing along with us over the Audible version. Thanks for listening. And remember, July 1st, our special 50th anniversary episode. We're going to do something special there for you. So tune in on July 1st for the big 5-0. Thanks for listening. And be excited. 